Morena, good morning. Um, if you flick through the New Testament letters and just give me a quick read, it's apparent that they were written to real churches, real fellowships, who had stuff that they needed to attend to. Um, the Corinthians arguing about the, what the resurrection really means and, and what were they going to do with this chap who was getting a bit friendly with his mother-in-law. Um, Thessalonians concerned about the end of the world and how all that was going to work. Galatians struggling to hold together uh, a Gentile and a Jewish section of their congregation and so on. And you'll see Paul occasionally warning a church about some dodgy character that they should stay away from. Um, in one instance he asks a church if he can have his cloak back next time someone's coming past from that church. It's very humdrum, it's very prosaic, it's very in the moment. Now from the beginning the value of these letters was recognised and they were circulated around the other churches. And I imagine that the challenges that the churches were facing were not unique. And a lot of what Paul said in these letters was of general application. It was about the stuff of the faith. Except there's one letter that reads like a theological treatise that might be submitted at Bible school. It's clearly written with the whole church in mind and it's the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11 is this head-spinning description of what Jesus' life, death and resurrection means. It's a really challenging kaleidoscope of spiritual ideas that we, the wider church, have been grappling with for the last no, over 1900 years. And we haven't finished. It's a really good read. But it's not a light bedtime read. So when Peter said in one of his letters that, you know, Brother Paul's great, but he can be a little bit hard to understand, I imagine there was this Mexican wave of approval when all around the ancient churches. Nodding, yep, we get it. Just take one of Paul's ideas, that of imputed righteousness. Though we are all sinners down to our toenails, God the Father sees us as having in the righteousness or good character of Jesus. He imputes it to us. So it's a bit like I've taken the exam, I've failed it dismally, but Jesus took the same exam and he passed brilliantly and he's going to share his result with me. Cool. Feels a little bit like cheating but cool, but like carbon credits. Someone plants a tree in Thailand so I can smelt steel and spew out carbon here. It's a complicated business. In these chapters, he's always talking about God's people as a whole, the nation of Israel, or all of humanity. It's big picture stuff. It's not... Horace, pull your head in, and I've got Horace here. Whoever's got the cat, good name. Horace, pull your head in and stop bothering Doris, 
And stay away from Jeff the blacksmith because he's bad news. There's none of that sort of stuff here. His key ideas is that we are all Jew and Gentile, guilty before God of being sinful. The Old Testament law does not save. Rather, it points us to the reality of our sin and our need for salvation. And that salvation is by faith rather than by being Abraham's linear descendants, as many Jews had supposed. Faith was in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. He was the ultimate once and for all atoning sin, atoning sacrifice that enabled everyone, all of us, to be grafted into the tree that is God's people. Faithful Jews who follow Jesus and repentant pagan Gentiles like you or I, we became one. Jesus turned everything on its head, which is not that surprising when you consider that in him, God became one of us. And towards the end, in chapter 9 to 11, Paul wrestles with God's purposes for Israel and why they have not yet accepted Jesus' new covenant on mass. And at the end of this just intense explosion of ideas, Paul says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul, this religious genius that we all owe a massive debt to, if a mind the size of an asteroid was in awe of the presence of God. Doesn't matter how wise or clever we might be, the Lord was there before us. Now take a look at this. It's an artistic impression of the Big Bang. Now the theory goes that the Big Bang started at a singularity, one point. In Romans, if we see the first 11 chapters as being the explosion bit, it's complex, it's dramatic, it's colourful, it all comes back to one word, and in Romans 12, 1, it's the word, therefore. 11 chapters of smoke and lightning and all the rest of it boils down to the word, Therefore, so what? What do we do with all of that? And let's read Romans 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds 
so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Given all that's gone before in those 11 chapters, what are we supposed to do? We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is a holy and acceptable act of spiritual worship. Now, we don't do a lot of sacrificing here in church anymore. It's gone out. But back in the day, both Jews and pagans knew what a sacrifice was. The nearest experience I've had to it was as a young guy accompanying my uncle as a farmer to the killing shed to kill a sheep. I was probably six when I saw my first one killed. I was fascinated. Amazing process. But I had the odd nightmare afterwards of him taking me down to the killing shed and killing me. But anyway, that's another whole trauma. But all of those sheep that I watched him kill became dead. Very dead. Likewise, at the sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem, the sacrifices were just that. Sacrificed. Dead. Like John Cleese said, shuffled off this mortal coil. A living, a living sacrifice is a contradiction in terms. If you're alive, you have not been sacrificed. Give us a minute and we can fix that. So what does this contradiction mean? I think Paul is urging us to utterly lean into God, to give ourselves completely to him in worship as if there was no going back, as if that was a permanent state of being, like being a dead lamb on the altar. He doesn't appeal to our emotions, our love for the Lord, nor does he appeal to our intellect. We don't have to have Romans 1 to 11 all figured out, and that's a mercy in itself. Rather, he appeals, appeals to our will. Just do it. This is the right response to all that Jesus has done for us and is continuing to do for us. He doesn't say present your mind or your heart as a living sacrifice. He says to present your body. Now it's common to think of ourselves as fundamentally spiritual beings who live within this odd, slightly decrepit looking physical shell. I've encountered this with people who have suffered a bereavement who will say things about their dead cousin or brother or whatever, that's not Jeff. He's gone. And again, many people talk about their soul as if it was something quite separate from their physical selves. Now these ideas owe a lot to Plato and all those dead Greek guys who lived a long time ago, who were influential back in Paul's time, just as they are now. And often what they say can boil down to something like this. Body, bad. Spirit, good. And one of the early Christian heresies was that Jesus was not a truly physical human being. He was a phantom. He was God with skin on. Because how could a perfect God become physical flesh, which is gross and immoral, as we all know? But Paul says, present your body, 
and that Jesus was fully human, a physical being like all of us. I think to be human is to be embodied. We are spiritual beings, but we're also emotional beings, social beings, and inherently physical beings. All these aspects of who we are interact and they form our identity, which I guess for want of a better word is our soul. I don't have a soul, I am a soul. Now I've learned from previous preaching that you need to be careful how you say our soul. Who's laughing? All that I can do and be should be acts of worship. When I swing a golf club, when I garden, when I write a sermon at Library Cafe on a sunny Saturday afternoon, when I watch cricket, when I watch rugby, when I take my son for his driving lesson, when I cook, when I do the dishes, all these can be acts of worship as if I was doing them for Jesus. You can put the garbage out worshipfully if you have Jesus in mind while you're doing it. All these prosaic bits and pieces of activities that when we add them all up are our lives, they can be done as acts of worship. How we live is our spiritual act of worship. Now for everything that Jesus has done, is doing and will do for us, it is outlined in Romans 1 to 11, he wants all of us in return. For when I wash my hair, from when I wash my hair, right down to the deepest parts of me where my fears, pains, regrets, hopes and dreams hang out together, he wants it all so that it can be renewed in him and can be redeemed. In verse 2, it's obvious. Whoops, where did I go? Yeah. That he wants to transform us from the inside out. From a renewed mind with reorientated thinking, a changed life can follow. When I was a very young Christian, I felt the prompting of the Spirit to go confess a few things that I'd done wrong. Lies I had told, stuff I had nicked. I found it excruciating. I found it humiliating. But it was surprisingly well received. That experience changed me profoundly. I became honest because I didn't want to go through that again. And over time, it's sort of become habitual. The other day, I bought two writing pads, but I was only charged for one. As I was all walking away, I was thinking, bargain. This is a good day. I got about 20 metres. Before I went back and I put it right and I had a nice chat with a very relieved shop assistant. The potter has changed me. Also in verse 2, he warns us not to let our culture shape us, which is a very real thing some examples. One of my favourite stories, and it's from Nepal. There was this young Hindu Brahmin guy, which is a high caste um, Indian person in the Hindu system. He'd become a Christian, he was at church, and they were going to have communion that day. 
and everybody was as tense as they were walking on the eggshells. Because, you see, the communion steward that day was a leather worker, and untouchable. And a Brahmin will not eat food prepared by an untouchable. It's a gross, disgusting thing for them. What would the young man do? At the end of communion, the young man went up to be served by the untouchable. And God was glorified as he let himself be transformed by the Spirit rather than continue to be formed by the wider culture. Second story. I got chatting to someone at a mega church service. You know, one of these big 1,200-seater things. And he asked me what I did, and I said, oh, I'm a Baptist pastor. And he said, oh, yeah, I used to be a Baptist. I was an elder at a Baptist church. Played guitar in the worship band. I was quite involved. I said, so why'd you come here? And he said, oh, the kids were now coming here and they were about to be off to university and the missus and I thought we'd like to still be at church with them before they go. Yeah, fair enough. And he told me, you know, I don't miss the politics. I don't miss the meetings. I don't miss being on rosters. Because all he did at his new church was show up and put money in the plate. No meetings. No rosters. No hassles. He's gone from being a gifted contributor in church to being a consumer of it. Fail. Lastly, one of my mother's farming cousins went through a real struggle when he was a younger man. I suspect this is probably about 1970. And he would sneak off the farm and he'd go down to the nearest big city and he'd see a psychologist to talk about his stuff. No one knew... And no one could know, because if they did, they would have thought he was completely nuts. Which was how psychology was seen in those days. If you saw a psychologist, you should be coming back in a, one of those jackets. He was brave enough not to be limited by his rather silly culture. Jesus wants your best, but the world not so much. It will press you into its mould if you let it. It seems to me then you can think about Romans like this. Romans 1 to 11. It's the difference that Jesus has made to all of humanity. It's all those big concept stuff. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Well, our response in principle is sacrificial worship. Then after, from Romans 3, eh, what does that look like? In more detail. Listen to Romans 12, 3 to 8. You might see what I mean. For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry and ministry ministering, the teacher and teaching, the exhorter and exhortation, the giver and generosity, the leader and diligence, the compassionate and cheerfulness. 
Don't think of yourself more highly than you should. If you do, that misplaced confidence in your abilities might get you into trouble. You may do things or say things that are beyond your competence or giftedness. Now, because of my previous legal career, I often get asked for my advice or opinion on legal stuff. And the first thing I always say to myself is, do you really know what you're talking about? And don't get ahead of your skis. In recent times, though, I've been surprised at the number of amateur virologists in our community. Many of them on my Facebook feed dispensing advice. Heroic advice sometimes. We had to think of ourselves with sober judgment in proportion to the measure of faith that we've been given. Now, if conceit leads us to sort of inject ourselves too much, by contrast, false modesty can hold us back. Try this for a test. C.S. Lewis, one of my heroes, said that the truly humble person could look at a painting and say that is a really good painting, even if they were the person who painted it. Maybe one day I will have the spiritual humility and maturity to be able to do that, but I'm not there yet. And to that extent, I'm not free. Could you do that? Then Paul digs into this well-known picture he's got of the people of God as a body. Each of us men, when we talk about members, you know, one's a heart, one's a liver, one's a finger, one's an eye, that kind of stuff. Each of us members with different roles. We're all different. But we're all valued as a part of the whole. Or we should be valued in what we bring. Now when I was in my um, early 30s, the Network Spiritual Gift Course was a big deal in the church. And it was to help you figure out what your spiritual gifts were. I was youth pastoring at the time, and our leadership team did it together. I learned some things then that God has grown in me since. It was quite a significant thing. These youngins told me I had the gift of wisdom, which quite frankly was a surprise. Now I've had to learn how to use it, so generally I won't offer unsought advice. I've made that mistake once or twice. And I try not to problem solve when actually what people need is to be listened to. But I love being able to talk through an issue with someone and see them get to a good conclusion. It really spins my wheels. A couple of years ago, I did a consultation for church that was getting really small, yet had a well-entrenched full-time pastor. Nice guy, but his role had ceased to be viable 10 or 15 years before. He had really good one-on-one -on -one pastoral skills, but if that church was to survive, they needed a quite differently gifted leader. On my advice, they disestablished the full-time role, and he went off and became a chaplain. I just heard the other day that has gone really well for him. Chaplaincy is a great fit. He's a chaplain in the hospital, and he's happy. I was relieved. They also told me at that seminar thing that I had the gift of administration, of administrative leadership, which was less of a surprise. But God has done really unusual things with it. I've been involved in restructuring Christian organisations and helping lead building projects 
And I remember when I first came to Island Baptist and they said to me, um, do you want to be part of a building project? And I said, no way. Thank you. Eight, one, eight projects later, here I am. Not things I expected to do, but it's been very fulfilling. And lastly, they told me that I was a shepherd. Now, I had a brief conversation with someone this week who thanked me for having helped them get through a time of depression and anxiety. I was really moved by that conversation because I didn't realise I'd been especially helpful to them. Lovely moment for me. 25 years later, I now know these gifts are me because I get so much satisfaction when I get to exercise them. They're my, my happy place. That's me. Who are you? I found that course really helpful. I've grown into the gifts that I've been given, not for myself, but for the body of Christ. Jesus broke into your life just like mine to save you because he loves you for full details, see Romans 1 to 8. And he's got a plan for how you will enrich the rest of us. What you're to do. Now Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 was mentioned by Colin last week in our three-way chat about rest. And I just want to read it again quickly because it's quite profound this bit. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one can boast. For we are what he has made us created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. There are particular things that he has in mind for each of us to do, and he gifts us to what he's called us to do. The gifts will match the task. Applying our spiritual gifts in accordance with our measure of faith is one way that we can be living sacrifices and worship our Lord. The Lord has a place for all of us. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at other ways that we can be a living sacrifice. Amen. Thank you for listening. Musos, you're on.